0: A reading from the book of the prophet Micah, chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, clean my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak king of Moab plotted and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: A reading from the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, starting with verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong.
2: A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, I just want to say a word. First of all, thank you so much, Jesse and Jamie, for leading us today. It was so beautiful and wonderful. Wonderful to have violin up there, too. It was really sweet. I um, uh, also just wanted to just make a comment about how thankful I am and how beautiful it is that um, a lot of uh, our younger uh, members, our kiddos, are participating in worship each week and um, doing a great job. I love that we started the acolyte, uh, acolyting and the processional and the cross. And um, I just think there's something really important to remember for all of us, that our faith is not just something intellectual or emotional, but our faith is physical to be lived out physically, and even our worship, this gives us opportunities and expressions as we walk and as we, that we're being formed, we're being shaped by something. So we celebrate that. So today we're continuing in the season of epiphany. To say that the Christian life is full of challenges is an understatement. Uh, The gospel is a constant challenge to the other narratives that we believe in our lives. We are a people who set our face in the grace of Jesus, set our face in the way of following him, but it's so easy for us to quickly find ourselves losing our footing on the journey. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo recalls an old saying from Bilbo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And that's often how the way of Jesus feels for the Christian and perhaps the way of humanity. (laughs) After my alarm goes off in the morning, I'm doing pretty good by the time I get dressed, get ready, prepare my morning coffee. But it's not too long before I am selfish. (laughs) I lack trust in God and I've trusted in the wrong thing. So what happens when I find myself in those places? What happens when I'm lost, when I lose my footing? Well, the good news is that God is always revealing God's self to us. When we say keep our feet, I'm not saying that we're to keep our feet fixed, but rather we keep moving and God shows up on our journey, ever comforting and ever challenging us. The prophet Micah declares that the Lord has a controversy with his people. So Judah's a mess. They have leaders who have become wealthy in corrupt ways. The prophets have served only the people who can pay them for their prophecy. The leaders and prophets steward the land through bribery. They favor the wealthy. They've taken away the land of the poor. This is all against the law. It's all against Torah and who they've been called to be. But at the end of each section of this prophetic book of Micah, there's also a word of hope. And there's this pattern that emerges God is not content with leaving his people in their place of selfishness, brokenness, and pain. God is not content with leaving them there. A new world is coming. And this is always true of God's posture towards his people. Though our sin leads to disaster, our God is not content to allow us to remain there. He's ever present with us. That's so interesting in this prophecy how the judge, when, when God calls upon the judge, the judge is the mountains and creation. So it says, here are the mountains, you controversy. So it's like a court of law. It's a um, law court language that's being used here in the prophet Micah. So it's like, hey, judge, mountains, <laughs> look at what Judah has done. We don't really speak that way today. We don't say, here, O oh tree, my neighbor has offended me. We don't think of things that way, do we? But the inclusion of creation as judge tells us something. Much of our sinfulness, much of what it means to miss the mark, is really a failure to be who God has created us to be. God has created human beings to reflect God's image, to steward and to take care of the world. So what selfishness is, is the turning inwards and forgetting our calling to bless. You've all probably heard the old C.S. Lewis quote that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. (laughs) Selfishness is inverting that or changing that. Greed, likewise, is hoarding of resources without allowing those resources to replenish. Lust is the objectification of another person for one's own desire. This theme is true of all sin living out of harmony with God's created order and turning inward. So what God does is he brings the mountains and brings creation into the conversation as a judge. And what that does is it reminds us that sin has consequences outside of just the consequences for us as individuals. To say it another way, sin grows. It has an impact on creation itself, on the world itself. Now, God knows what we need when we're off track. Often it is to be reminded of who we are in him, that we have a different identity. God reminds the people of what he's done for them. He has brought Israel out of Egypt, verses four and five, and yet they're not living like a delivered people. They're not living like a people who have that deliverance as their story. And then verses six through eight, which will be familiar to many of you. Actually, verse eight is the one that's familiar, but verse six, the people respond What should I give the Lord? And then they list a bunch of different kinds of sacrifices. Some of them are more extreme than other ones. Maybe you've experienced this with raising a child, some of you. Um, You will say, you need to go to your room right now because your behavior is not appropriate. Your child will respond by saying, fine, I'll just stay in my room for the rest of my life. Are you happy now? None of you have had children like that or, or ever had any, anything like that, but maybe that's just, okay, it's just me, that's fine, all right. But, but the response is usually, no, that's not what I'm telling you to do. That's an extre- You're being extreme. That, that's, that's too far. That's not what I'm telling you to do. I'm telling you to do something else because I'm, I'm looking for you to adjust your attitude. I'm looking for you to calm yourself down, whatever it is. Well, Israel kind of does that. They say to God, well, what should we give you? Should we give you burnt offerings? Is that what you want? How about calves? How about, we have lots of calves. We'll give you calves. How about 1,000 rams? You want 1,000 rams? How about that? We'll give you 1,000 rams. We'll give you 10,000 rivers of olive oil. That's what we'll give you. And then the most extreme is they say, how about my firstborn? Would you be happy if you have my firstborn? Well, the offering of one's firstborn son was not an Israel thing. That was a pagan thing. In fact, it was prohibited for Israel. So what they're doing is they're exaggerating. They're trying to make it more and more extreme. Okay, you say we're so bad. So we're so bad, we need to give you this most extreme thing. But here's the reality. God is not looking for that kind of gesture. He's not looking for payment. Instead, God says, basically, you know who you are. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly. These are matters of change of our posture, of our orientation, of our heart. This doesn't mean that when we do justice and love mercy and walk humbly that those are payments for our sin. No, no, we can't do that. But they're ways of illustrating that God wants our whole lives to be oriented towards him, for us to live who we are. Now, this passage, I've heard this preached many times as an anti-ritual passage. So... Um, We often hear the words of the prophet, and then I've heard preachers say, yeah, God was never interested in sacrifices. That's all just ritual legalism. God wants our heart. That's often how it's preached. But such a response fails to explain why God gave them the rituals in the first place. (laughs) Because he gave them these rituals and said, do this, right? The rituals which God gives his people are never intended to buy forgiveness or acceptance or whatever. Ritual is something which forms our entire selves. It shapes us. It's not an earning thing. It's a shaping thing. So whatever we do, it can be a neutral thing. It can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. Whatever we do over and over again begins to shape us. It forms us. That's the power of ritual. It's not, for the Christian, it's not transaction. It's formation. So God is not interested in your earning his love or forgiveness. You can't do that. It doesn't work that way. God desires for us to live in harmony with who he's created us to be. So the first command here, which is really just two commands. There's three things, but two commands. The first command is act justly and love mercy. This has to do with people's relationship with one another. God wants the Israelites to exercise stewardship in a way that embodies the commitment of people to one another instead of just looking out for the needs of those who are in authority. Then the second command has to do with people's relationship with God. So they're to walk humbly. In other words, know that you are not the center of the universe. You have a deeper authority than yourself. Which may sound obvious. It sounds like something, well, of course I'm not the center of the universe. But everything in us and everything in the world wants to us to get our needs met the other way, wants us to make ourselves the center of the universe, to be our own authority. But, God says, there is a better way. In our epistle reading, Paul is continuing to address this idea that we talked about last week of divisiveness within the church. There's all these factions, proto-denominations within the church. And they have flocked to different leaders because they value worldly wisdom or rhetorical eloquence above all else. Last week, I told you about the door-to-door salesman that we met when we first bought our home. And when we bought our house, I was not sufficiently prepared for the alarm system wars that take place in neighborhoods all around the country where they compete to try to get your business for the alarm system. And each salesperson has a shtick. They have a different style. They have a different kind of thing. And they're competing with each other. And I saw the game playing out on the ground in real time. One particular agent kept showing up on our front porch trying to get us to talk to him. And he had one of those rhythmic knocks where he had like a song he's playing like as he's knocking on the door. Gosh. And in talking with these salesmen, I mean, bless him. Okay. But in talking with these salesmen, I found out that the, their goal was really to be the one who beats the other guys. All right. That's the goal. So they want to put their Brinks or their ATD or their vector sign in our yard before the other guy does. And part of what they're doing is trying to convince you that their system is, of course, way better than the other guy's system. So those poor guys, they're doing the best with the product they have, but my product is the best. (laughs) I'm the one who, who knows what I'm doing. Well, this is likely similar to how these teachers peddled wisdom in the first century. They convinced everyone, okay, these poor teachers, they're fine, but I have the right system. I have the right philosophy in the right package. But Paul says the gospel is different than that. I think one of the great challenges for pastors today and for the churches today is when you get down to it, we don't have anything to offer anyone else in the tangible sense. We don't have a product that we're trying to sell. I always know the people who check out a church or join a church because they think there's a tangible benefit to them. Um, Oh, I can make good business connections here. Oh, my kid will be entertained for an hour. Oh, I can make friends. And usually in my history, working at several churches, is those folks don't tend to last at church very long. Because none it's not that none of those things can happen at church. They do, for sure. But because that's not the point. We're not offering a service. We're not offering the best of many things, right? That's even the challenge with the term worship service. <laughs> it's probably the best word that we have, but sometimes it gives the sense that we're offering a service to you. Kind of like Friday when I got my oil changed. <laughs> it was, that was a service. Then next week I'll get my hair cut. That will be a service. Sometimes it's tempting to put church in that same category and say, well, they're offering a service. But people in our world don't know what to do with something that's not a service, that's not a product, that doesn't provide a thing for which we can consume. The gospel's not a self-help plan. We can't promise people financial success or give people a quick fix for their marriage or their emotional health. What do we do then? What can we do? We remind each other and the world that our current experience is not the whole story that there is a bigger story. In Christ, God has rescued us. God has drawn near to us. And as Paul would say, the announcement divides humanity into two, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. For the perishing person, the whole thing's foolishness, Paul says. For those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul says, this thing is a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Gentiles. In other words, if you're somebody who's looking for power, for a sign, for supernatural proofs, the gospel is going to be a stumbling block because our whole story is centered on a crucified Messiah. N.T. Wright says, The good news is all about God dying on a rubbish heap at the wrong end of the empire. Likewise, if you're someone who's looking for rhetorical skill or wisdom or the wisdom or a way of measuring truth, wisdom as the way of measuring truth, you're looking for the wrong thing because the cross will always look like foolishness to the world. In verse 19, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So the Corinthians are suffering from a lack of unity because they're chasing the wrong things. They've forgotten that the cross itself is foolishness to the world. Some come to faith looking for power, some for inspiration, some for a fix for a problem in their life. But God doesn't give us a fix as if it were a product. God steps into the suffering with us. Healing comes only through that solidarity, knowing not God is here to fix me, but God is in this with me. And when we get to the other side of our difficulty, we can see that the cross, the stumbling block, this foolish thing, is actually the strongest, most powerful thing ever. As Paul says, the foolishness of the cross is the wisest thing ever. True wisdom comes from a relationship with God that leads to holy living made possible by the cross. And when we live into that new world, it changes us. It begins to change our situations and change the world. But this means something interesting for us. If the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, what does that make us to the world? The foolish people. <laughs> Think about the good news this is, though. I, Ashley was reading this this week in a different form, and she was like, probably should clarify that when you say the cross is foolishness, that's it's not really foolishness. I was like, but look at what Paul says. He says it's foolishness over and over again. So if the cross is foolishness and we're foolish people, but think about the good news in this. If you follow a story of victory and success and domination, it's going to prove to be empty. Why? Who's invited to stories like that? Who gets to be part of those? The fittest, the most victorious, the successful but not the poor and the lost and the disenfranchised. The good news of Jesus is good news for them. Paul says to the church, if you ever doubt that, I love just how human his, his, you know, his letter is, but if you ever doubt that, just look at yourselves. We're a motley crew. God has called his church to reflect the gospel, and that's scandalous. And the good news is we don't boast in our wisdom and in our influence or our noble birth. We boast in the Lord. We've all heard our gospel reading before, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. And it's easy sometimes for us to turn the Beatitudes into moral principles. So to think that they're just the call to do better. We often believe blessed are the poor in spirit means, gosh, I better be more poor in spirit. Or blessed are the meek means I need to be more meek. But notice, Jesus doesn't give this as a prescription. He doesn't say, be more merciful. He said, blessed are the merciful. It's descriptive. So Jesus is describing what life looks like in his kingdom. And yes, this is what his kingdom will look like in the future in fullness, right? We'll see this in fullness. But it's actually what it looks like now. Jesus doesn't say, one day the the poor will be blessed. And we said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God's kingdom is at work now, working now, and we're called to join in. Here's the challenge. It doesn't often look this way, does it? What do we do with situations like what happened in Memphis this week? Because the reality is, the Nichols family mourns, In our world, those who mourn often go uncomforted. The meek don't inherit the earth. Those who long for justice often don't see justice. The ancient world was used to rulers coming in and changing everything. So a new ruler would conquer and assume the throne, and then everything would change. And the nation would begin to take the form and shape of that ruler Well, we live now in this in-between time. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it's not yet been fully realized. And this is where we as the church are in some sense ambassadors of the new administration. We believe in the deeper story and we seek to live that out. It's a reality, it's real, it's true. God's kingdom is here, but it needs to be proclaimed. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the idea of dependency and trust. Blessed are those at the end of their rope, Eugene Peterson says in his translation. In the old world, the perishing world, those who trust God rather than themselves, those who are not self-sufficient enough in the world's standards, those who come with empty hands, who recognize their own dependency in the world, the old world, Those are not the highly valued ones. By contrast, the kingdom of God is built on dependency, on recognizing our need for God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It is appropriate to grieve the wrongs of the world and the wrongs of your life. The Christian faith is not a, well, everything's just going to be better, and so this isn't real, or this is just perishing, or this is just a shadow. No, blessed are those who mourn, who know that there's something about loss and death and brokenness in the world that is not right. We are to grieve for that. Refusing to mourn over tragedy and injustice is inherently dark because it hides what's really going on. In our world, in God's new world, that comfort is near. We long for that day, Revelation says, when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And then the church, we're invited to be the comforters now, who live here and now, who join God, the true comforter for the world. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Well, in the perishing world, meekness feels like weakness. We're told that confidence is the way to get ahead. Self-assuredness, to recognize our own brokenness and limitations, that's weak and ineffective But meekness, God says, Jesus says, is part of the DNA of the new world. When we walk in weakness, we can see the beauty in others, not just in how they relate to us, but the beauty in themselves. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. In the old world, the perishing world, those who long for justice just go on longing. In God's new world, there is true justice. The world is made right. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This leads us to this question of forgiveness. We've been forgiven. In Christ, there is forgiveness. What does it mean to be a forgiveness people in our world? When someone treats us wrongly, what is our typical response? Is it to lash out? That tells us something about what's going on in our heart. I don't know about you, but I'm not a very, you guys know me, I'm not a very... um, violent person. I don't kind of react in real strong kind of ways, but passive aggressiveness is my go-to. So I'm not usually a harmful person, but gosh, in my house, if clothes get left on the floor and continue to sit there for several days, something snippy is going to come out from my mouth, under my breath, right? And I'm remembering that's the old world, (laughs) not the new one, right? That's the world that's perishing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I had some situations in my life this week, not anything to do with any of you, um, some situations that were going on that, that caused me to gauge my emotional reaction and um, complicated and messy and caused an initial reaction in me. And I had to look at the situation. Okay, how much of this is just my initial reaction? How much, what's the objective situation? And my constant prayer this week has been, God, search my heart. Because I know that to every situation, I bring selfishness, self-centeredness, agendas that are different. Lord, search my heart. See, show me those things in me that are not in your way. And help me to see this accurately and to see this clearly. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. In the perishing world, peacemaking often seems futile. Peace is sometimes something we experience for a period of time, but it seems like the human heart is just bent towards war. But in stark contrast, in God's new world, it's the peacemakers who are said to be God's children. Violence is the way of the old world, the perishing world, but Jesus chose a different pattern. I love it when people don't want to think of Jesus as peaceful usually what happens is they bring up the same passage. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. But in John 2, 13 through 25, Jesus overturns tables in the temple. And every time I run into somebody that doesn't want to think of Jesus as peaceful and wants to think of him as warlike, it's always about the overturning of the tables. Well, Jesus overturned tables, you know. He wasn't very peaceful. But I think this misses the point. Jesus' clearing of the temple was inherently nonviolent because he overturned tables and not people. <laughs> we have in, this, in the old world the myth of redemptive violence, this belief that if I just do one final act of violence, one thing, whatever, on a small scale, it's if I lash out in anger this one time, on a large scale, it's a country saying, hey, if we just do this one big violent thing, then that's going to end all the violence. But that's never how it works. Violence always leads to more violence. It's always a snowball effect. Notice that we have together righteousness and justice and peacemaking. We have them right next to each other. And this is because peacemaking is also truth-telling. In South Africa, after apartheid, Archbishop Desmond Tutu led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was an opportunity for stories of injustice to be heard and to be dealt with. It was an opportunity for things that were hidden by darkness to come into the light so that they might be healed. Peacemaking is not the absence or prevention of conflict. So, peacemaking is not peacekeeping. It's not, um, well, let's just not really talk about this issue or this injustice because that's going to make some people mad, so we're going to keep the peace. No, peacemaking is different, it's the addressing of brokenness and the process of healing. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this world, those who are persecuted for the sake of Christ often see no relief. We still live in a world today where many are persecuted for the sake of Jesus around the world. There are still um, many who die for their faith. Um, Jesus says that this is how it's always worked in the old world. Anytime someone proclaims the rule and reign of God, there's always opposition. But, Jesus says, there's something on the other side of that suffering, and this suffering is not in vain. Now, let me say something about this. In America, a lot of Christians like to say that they're persecuted. And the reality is that we live in a world where those who have embraced the Christian faith have been the ones in authority for a long, long, long period of time and have been the majority. And so when we cry persecution, but it's not consistent with the way of Jesus and the Beatitudes, it's often more selfishness, self-centeredness, and the quest for power than it is actually being persecuted for our faith. Now, if we look around the world, it is true that there are many, many in countries um, where Christianity is either outlawed or severely persecuted where many still lose their life and so I think for perspective it's so important for us as Christians anytime we feel like oh Christian way is kind of being stepped on oh man I don't know what I think about this pluralism thing to go let's look at our brothers and sisters in this country or in that country and see what real persecution is that wasn't in my notes so you're not allowed to criticize what I just said but I'm just kidding (laughs) Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus intentionally allowed himself to suffer the pain of the world. He does so not in a way that's codependent. Codependency keeps things in the dark. But rather by his death, Jesus revealed the wickedness of the world bringing it to light and conquering the darkness. This is what God's kingdom will look like when it comes in fullness and what it looks like now as we see the kingdom at work. Remember that Jesus is not predicting his kingdom. He's proclaiming his kingdom. It's happening right now. His kingdom is here and we are invited to look for it and to join it. My final words, um, leaning on this idea of foolishness is a difficult concept for me. I think it's true for all of us. Knowing that the way of the kingdom is so different, so radically upside down from what we're told in the world, it's difficult for me. I often get swept off my feet. I get distracted by a plethora of methods and means and visions of the good life offered by the old world. I often look for the quick fix in my life. And to me and to all of us, there's good news The stories of the old world are illusory and untrue. We're not defined by worldly success. There's no quick fix to restoration. God calls us to a different set of rules. It is only on the other side of the cross that we discover that God's foolishness is wiser than wisdom itself. God's weakness is stronger than strength itself. So the answer today, and maybe some of us are struggling for all kinds of things today. And the answer in our lives is not just do better. It's not pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. The answer in our lives is not found in fixing or controlling or manipulating. The answer is found in letting God do what God does in our lives, in trusting the one who has flipped the world upside down. Hope is found in the one who walks the road of the disgraced, the crying, the mourning, the damned, revealing that he has been with them all along. Amen.